Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. 12 inches tall, with movable arms and limbs, the toy had many of the same attributes as Barbie. You could dress it up in outfits, give it accessories, and take it on adventures— but you could not call it a doll. G.I. Joe was America's movable fighting man. Created in 1964, Hasbro executives worried that parents would not buy a doll for their sons. G.I. Joe was a huge success. Since its creation, the toy has been one of many subtle and not-so-subtle ways that American culture defines American manhood. Now that definition is under debate— and a growing chorus argues that American men and boys are in crisis. I'm Charlotte Howard. This is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, is there a crisis of masculinity in America? There have long been worries about manhood in the United States. Today, nearly half of men believe traditional masculinity is under threat. While the left talk about toxic masculinity, some politicians on the right fear men's very, quote, deconstruction. But researchers also point to data showing a decline in men's education rates and rise in deaths from drugs and suicide. Does the debate over masculinity obscure actual problems for boys and men? And what does the fight over America's men mean for the country's women and its politics? Hello, I'm here with Sasha Nadav, who writes a lot about gender and social policy for The Economist, and Idris Kaloon, also in Washington. How are you both? Sasha, what's new? Hey, Charlotte. Well, I'm getting used to my first summer here in D.C. and have very quickly learned that Air conditioning is not a luxury item in the city, but um, all is well here. It's uh, it's lovely to see the city come alive. And how about you, Idris? Uh, I always feel like I'm the one who talks about the weather, so I'm glad you got there first. Uh, <laughs> the summer is not the season uh, to be in D.C., so I'm sorry about that. You just had the, the best one, but everything with me is fine. I was just in Kentucky, you know, filling up on home food. Uh, I feel like I've come back a few pounds heavier, but I think that's how it's supposed to go. So this week we're talking about masculinity and manhood, traditional ideals of manhood. And it also happens to be a week in which a former president and possibly future president was found by a jury to be liable for sexual assault. What did you both make of the Carroll case against Donald Trump? Yes, I think it was a an interesting case. I mean, this is not insignificant, even for Donald Trump. Um, he's been found by a New York jury unanimously to be liable for sexual 
assault. Uh, the language there is a bit stilted because it's not a criminal case, it's a civil case, which means nevertheless that, you know, nine ordinary Americans listened to the evidence and said, actually, you really have done something wrong here and you need to pay $5 million for it. Um, so I, I think it was not insignificant at all, particularly because it's quite an old case. Normally these cases are really hard to bring, let alone to argue. The real question, of course, is does it ultimately matter? And I guess there, the fact that it was Donald Trump rather than, say, a candidate who we didn't have any historical notes on about this kind of behavior is very important in, in, in how you look at whether it matters. But Idris, what do you think? I was chatting with a Republican operative just a few minutes, really, after the decision came out. And I remember asking him, what do you think this will actually change? And he said to me in very clear terms that he doesn't think it'll change much at all. He said that he thought that everyone had already priced in this sort of behavior in their assessment of Donald Trump as a man and as a person. And he didn't think it would change very much in the same way that uh, the Access Hollywood tape that came out in the waning days of the 2016 election didn't change very much. And I think for my part that I agree with his analysis. I don't think that even something as consequential as this will really change the calculation for a lot of Republican primary voters who will just see this as part of a campaign against their president and will very easily, I think, dismiss it, especially since he continues to deny it and is appealing. Well, one of the reasons why Donald Trump resonates with many voters is a feeling that he understands their plight. And that's particularly true among certain working class men. And I think a lot of what Donald Trump says is hyperbole, but the problems facing boys and men are not necessarily so. And so I wanted to ground our conversation this week in an interview with Richard Reeves, who's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and the author of Of Boys and Men. And he has been documenting growing gender gaps. I think anybody that's been paying attention to employment or education knew that there were some gender gaps growing and in the the unusual direction, if you like. In other words, where you're seeing boys and men falling behind women and girls. But I, I guess I was surprised by the extent. So, for example, in higher education, there's a bigger gap on U.S. college campuses today in favor of women. I knew that the male suicide rate was higher. I didn't know it was four times higher. I knew the wages hadn't done well for men. I didn't, hadn't quite grasped that they'd been essentially stagnant for most men for recent decades. And then you put it all together and, and there's a story there that wasn't exactly breaking news to anybody that's been in the social science, but the extent and depth of the problems did startle me. I was struck by some of the discussion about how boys actually are much more sensitive to their environments we see in the data than girls. They're much more susceptible to poverty, to inequality. Their outcomes are much more linked with their environment. I'm wondering whether you see the discussion changing at all within the left, within your wonky circles, about how some of these challenges might be addressed. The work of Raj Chetty and his team out of Harvard on intergenerational mobility has really sharpened this point that both by race and class, you see really significant differences in outcomes for, for boys and girls with a very clear story that poverty hurts boys more than girls. It's not, of course, that both aren't hurt by poverty. It's that boys are disproportionately hurt and by family instability and poor neighborhoods and so on. And so that's why, in the end, 
I am quite hopeful about the possibility of actually a, a collective effort across this across this party lines because in the end, if you do care about poverty and the impact of poverty, then you should really care about boys. But if you if you're really worried about boys, you need to really worry about poverty and inequality. And to the extent that those kind of fall along left and right lines, that should mean that there should be a shared interest in what's happening to to boys and men, and black boys and men above all. I want to stick on that question of how different boys and men are affected by these issues. How should we think about the narratives of the problems that have led to bad outcomes for black men versus the newer concern of of bad outcomes for white men in the heartland? It is certainly true that we've seen troubling trends among white working class men. But at the same time, in the US, black boys and men are still so systematically disadvantaged. But it depends what the question is. If you're worried about suicide, for example, and deaths of despair, then actually your primary concern is going to be white working class men and boys. But if you're worried about educational attainment and you're worried about family formation and you're worried about incarceration risk and criminal justice, you're going to worry much more about black boys and men. So those are empirical questions. Um, And again, we shouldn't have to choose between the two. It depends what the particular problem at hand is as to which group are the ones who are struggling most from it. What strikes me about this as being particularly interesting is both the scale of the problem, as you just outlined it, which is an objective problem, but then also just how vast the range of subjective answers can be for what caused this problem and what to do about it. And so in particular, there's this narrative on the right that men are under attack. There's a narrative on the left that it's a problem of toxic masculinity. So I'm curious how you see this debate taking place on the right and whether you see it as a cultural issue or one in which there are any kind of coherent policy solutions. I think what's happening is that the reactionary right are successfully weaponizing the discontent, dislocation of many boys and men in the culture wars. So they're brandishing it quite successfully. And they're blaming the left. They're blaming mainstream institutions. They are blaming culture, right? So they're saying it's the liberal culture that hates men and thinks they're toxic and, you know, the sort of feminists have taken over. And Josh Hawley, Senator Josh Hawley, for example, would, you know, says that the attack on masculinity is the tip of the spear of the attack on America itself from the left. That's basically it. There are no real policy prescriptions that flow from that. What it's really doing is it's a, a way of catching the discontent and channeling it into reactionary politics. And you're seeing that kind of around the world. Meanwhile, on the political left, anything that's seen as in any way leaning into or towards the problems of boys and men is seen as a distraction at best or from the continued need to fight for women and girls. Of course, in my view, framing it that way from either side as a zero-sum game is precisely the problem. And so there's just this real vacuum that gets created by the way in which this debate is polarized. And that wouldn't matter as much if there weren't actual problems facing boys and men that we actually need to deal with with policies. But there are. So, Idris, in some ways, the idea that we'd have an episode on the problems facing men would seem a little absurd. Women still trail men in the executive suite. When a woman has a baby, they take a real knock, the data shows, in their earnings. So do you think this is overblown? Or when you look at the data, as Richard Reeves does, do you see 
a big problem? And if so, what is the data that's most striking to you? Which are the problems that seem to be disproportionately affecting men and boys? Um, I, I think Reeves does a very good job in his book of finding ways of presenting problems among boys and men in a way that's palatable and that doesn't immediately sort of bring about these existential questions about whether or not masculinity as a whole is in crisis and needs saving. I think he's very good at at presenting it. But to your question, I think that there are a few areas where empirically the data look concerning and they affect men at different stages of life. Start at the beginning, you have boys in school who are lagging behind girls in terms of their graduation rates, in terms of their test scores. And you see that manifest particularly in the composition of colleges and universities now, where there is basically, especially at the high levels of of elite institutions, de facto affirmative action for boys necessary to get something like gender-balanced classes together. That didn't exist uh, even a few decades ago. So there's a real problem in the educational sphere. There's second problem among men uh, in terms of their participation in the labor force. That's not a new problem. It's been declining over the last few decades. And then third, we have these new social problems that, you know, these deaths of despair that people uh, talk about, uh, opioid addiction and suicide, which disproportionately um, has been taking the lives of men. I think you put those three together and you see that there is a problem that's emerging and is one that I think people have been reluctant to talk about up to now. So there are two big phenomena underway, right? One is that there are objectively problems that disproportionately affect men. But then you have this broader discussion of masculinity itself. And so I'm wondering, Sasha, if you could tease that apart, because how are these two phenomena related? Well, I guess there's a question whether they are. I think, you know, you mentioned Trump earlier in the intro. I think for opportunistic politicians, as well as parts of the media, it's very tempting to bring this all together and to say there is this man crisis, masculinity crisis, men are under attack and bring it all together. I'd actually pick it apart a little bit and say there are two things happening here. There is, and and I agree with Idris, I mean, Reeves does a good job at highlighting, I think, mostly old problems, actually. I think that, you know, the, the escalating College attainment gap is definitely a relatively new thing, but most of these things are simply highlighting gaps that have been there for a really long time and that we just didn't pay attention to and couldn't talk about. So you have male problems, problems that disproportionately affect males on one hand, and it is right that we are finally talking about them and tackling them. And no, that doesn't need to come at the cost of talking about, you know, gender gaps that run the other way. But then on the other hand, there's this question of like identity and that sort of gets into masculinity. Is traditional masculinity under attack in America? I mean, the fact that nearly half of American men think that it is in itself is probably a reason to look at this more closely. I mean, that's higher than any other country surveyed apart from Russia. So that's really quite quite a stark stat. I struggle a little bit with drawing a strong line between the two. It's tempting to say men have faced relative decline compared to women in America. They've dropped out of the labor force a little bit more. They're less represented in college, et cetera, et cetera. Their role in the family is changing. Their role in society is changing, you know, bluntly. Women economically need them less than they did a couple of generations ago. It is tempting to draw a direct line to that and therefore there is a masculinity crisis. But in reporting this, I'm less convinced that those are the same groups 
of men. So the men who are struggling with what am I for versus the men who are suffering from some of these so-called male problems aren't necessarily uh, the same men. But they're both important topics to talk about. And I think Reeves does a very good job at focusing at the actual social problems, which I think are the much more tangible thing that we can work on. Masculinity is about identity. It is something fluid. It's something that's always changing. And actually getting obsessed about masculinity and what it means to be a man and whether you're under attack or not, uh, very quickly sort of polarizes men and women against each other and can, in my opinion, get in the way of actually fixing some of these real social problems. Yeah, I think that's right. And then I also think it's worth noting that this is not new, that these concerns about masculinity come in waves. And they come in waves for political reasons, but also more substantive ones because of broader changes within America's economy and culture. So I'm looking forward to talking with you about that more. So we'll go back in a minute to look at another crisis in masculinity in American history. But first, the usual reminder, we would love it. If you don't have a subscription to The Economist, please take one out. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash USPod. Idris and Sasha, what have you particularly enjoyed from our recent coverage? I really enjoyed James Bennett's Lexington column, which looked at the walk between Washington, D.C. and New York and was just a very lovely read, particularly for a newcomer to the area. I liked very much his Lexington from this week on the Trump uh, town hall with CNN, which uh, some of you may have caught and went off the rails, but uh, he tours through uh, what to make of it, I think, in a way that's very discerning and, uh, and different from the other analyses that you might have read. I haven't watched the town hall yet, so maybe I'll start with a few clips and then read James's column. Those are both two very good recs. You can go to economist.com slash podcast offer for a free 30-day digital subscription. The link is in the notes for this episode. Although many of the problems facing American men seem new, worrying about masculinity is not. In the 1970s, a potent combination of women's liberation and androgynous glam rock was challenging traditional gender roles. When David Bowie was still David Jones, he got his first interview on British television. A 17-year-old David Jones has just founded the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Long-Haired Men. Now, exactly who's been cruel to you? Well, I think we're all fairly tolerant, but for the last two years we've had uh, comments like, darling, and uh, can I carry a handbag thrown at us? I think it's just had to stop now. I mean, I, I, I used to be able to stop traffic quite easily by just walking down the street. No, no more than that, just because I had long hair. Bowie, whose Rebel Rebel was released on the album Diamond Dogs in 1974, had pioneered the new androgyny two years earlier. The satin catsuits and makeup of Ziggy Stardust inspired a generation of boys to rifle through their sister's cosmetics. I was not a natural performer. I didn't feel at ease on stage, ever. And I had created this one character, Ziggy Stardust, that it seemed that I would be the one that would play him because nobody else was doing my songs and the chances of my actually getting a musical mounted were very slim. And so I became Ziggy Stardust for that period. 
That's what John Lennon said, uh, rock and roll with lipstick. It really is, it's rock and roll with lipstick. I wish I'd retitled it that, in fact. <laughs> Released in the summer of 1972, the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars included Lady Stardust, a track Bowie wrote for the equally androgynous T-Rex star, Mark Bolan. By October, Bowie was on stage in San Francisco for his first American concert. 1972 was also the year of the film Deliverance and its male rape scene. The New York Times said it was, quote, important for the vision it brings to the urgent question of understanding and redefining masculinity. Old narratives of American men seemed increasingly up for debate. And there were bigger changes at work, too, that challenged traditional ideals of male strength. The defeat of American soldiers in Vietnam and the early days of deindustrialization. Women, black people, Puerto Ricans, Mexicans, and all the minorities, that all of us must stand up together and say, no more. And America's women were increasingly unsatisfied playing a supporting role. This inhuman system of exploitation will change, but only if we force it to change and force it together. In 1972, Congress passed Title IX to prevent sex discrimination in education. There was then a 12 percentage point gap in the share of degrees going to men compared to women. About 50 years later, the debate over masculinity is raging once again. But this time, the gap in college attainment is reversed and even wider. Adrice, how is this discussion different than prior waves of concern about manhood and masculinity? I was struck in the middle of the century, there were people, including Arthur Schlesinger, who was an advisor to JFK, who were writing about men being castrated and, and armies of women who were becoming more empowered. And there was a concern more broadly that men in big companies were becoming paper pushers. A big part of JFK's appeal was about a sort of masculine vigor. What do you make of this round of concern about masculinity and manhood compared with prior ones? I think there are a few differences, namely that in the 60s when Schlesinger was writing and JFK was president, you know, these changes the sexual revolution or women's liberation, whatever you'd like to call it, was beginning, right? And people were trying to see what the end point of that would be, and it was uncertain. I think what we see now is a reaction in a society in which women have come a lot further in terms of rights formally, but also have come a lot further in terms of outcomes to convergence. And what we're seeing now is that less of a concern about women catching up and more of a concern about men actually falling behind young men in particular, uh, lagging behind in terms of educational achievement. And that's going to manifest itself probably a few decades hence in terms of the top of the income distribution, the CEOs and such. Yeah, that's really interesting to to ground it, I think, in that arc, actually, from the 60s to today, beginning maybe to end, though, of course, this is a continuous story, right? It's not like there's a clear endpoint. But I am struck by your comments about the data on where there are gaps between men and women. Because when you think about gender inequity, a lot of the data suggests that women at the upper end of the distribution are still lagging behind elite men. But for poor men without college degrees, they're the ones who are meaningfully falling behind. 
And so I'm wondering, Sasha, how you think questions of class color the discussion about gender equity? Yeah, I think they massively do. I think class in particular is probably the most helpful lens to look at some of this stuff. But it's undeniable that men do lag at the lower end of the socioeconomic distribution. And I think part of the challenge there now, unlike in the past, is both economically but particularly socially, you know, what's the what's the offer for men like this? Particularly, particularly so-called left behind men, and they're younger than you think. You'd, you'd sort of think, oh, we're talking about men who haven't got the right skills, etc. No, there's actually a relatively large group of so-called left behind younger men who don't have a college degree, who don't have a relationship or a family, who I think kind of rightly wonder, well, hang on, where do I fit in? And this is one of the subgroups where I'd say the male problems we talked about and the question of what is masculinity and what is masculinity in 2023 really comes out. And men are having two very different experiences in America. Like some men are basically having a gender revolution. I mean, look at how middle-class white-collar job men did during covid Many of them spending more time with their families, et cetera, et cetera, and being able, thanks to their jobs, to make permanent changes to, you know, what it means to be a man, et cetera. And at the other hand, you have these men who are probably more at the losing end of things. So you have a gender revolution and perhaps a, a gender crisis. And this is all men. So I think teasing those two groups apart is really important. So I hear what you're saying, Sasha, but it also seems pretty evident from the data that you do need to take gender into account pretty strongly when you're trying to get your arms around these problems. What do you think, Adrice? Like as to whether or not gender is still a useful metric to disaggregate data by, I think it is uh, in conjunction with class and in conjunction with race. You know, this is an endorsement, I guess, of intersectionality, but it's important because what Chetty and others work has demonstrated is that the entirety of the black-white mobility gap is driven by black boys and black men, right? And that's an important finding that should ground how we understand processes of racial discrimination. And then likewise, you know, your your point about the class distinction among men is is exactly right. But we need to impose the, the gender frame in order to to discern that. One thing that strikes me when you think about the ways that the debates about masculinity versus the problems facing men are related is that there's pretty strong data showing that men, when their relative earnings decline compared with their spouse, that they act out in ways that suggest that their masculinity is explicitly being threatened either by rates of abuse going up, they're more likely to buy guns, and so forth. So it seems to me like there is both a policy problem, but then also a cultural one that is precipitated or exacerbated by this shift. We'll be back in a moment to hear about whether this is a particularly American problem. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. 
Tap the banner to go to monday.com. Dr. Alice Evans is a senior lecturer at King's College London and a visiting associate professor at Yale. Her research on this has taken her all over the world, and I wanted to talk with her about how America's gender divide compares with that of other countries. America is not exceptional. Across Europe and Latin America as well, women are more likely to complete college. And even though men are less likely to complete college, they are still more likely to earn a higher wage and achieve positions of seniority. So those aspects of masculinity are fairly similar. A more extreme and totally different other rich country would be South Korea, where there really is a masculinity crisis. Why is that more of a masculinity crisis than what we have in the States? So about 30 years ago, parents were choosing to have only one son. They wanted a son to continue the family line. And they also wanted a son because he would earn more. South Korea has the highest gender pay gap in the OECD. So you have intensely skewed sex ratios. Now, those have since reduced, but it means the current generation today have a really tough dating market. And so there are two consequences of this. One is in South Korea, there is the highest male spend on cosmetics, right? If you're in an adverse dating market, you try to make yourself look more attractive. Uh, Secondly, many of those frustrated men elected an anti-feminist president last year, and he came to power on a wave of support from this younger age group. So the American crisis of masculinity is nothing compared to what's happening in South Korea. So, Alice, you have traveled around the world looking at gender inequality. But one thing in the United States that's been particularly interesting is looking at what's happened with men in the conversation around masculinity in the wake of COVID. So talk to me about what's changed in recent years. Absolutely. So for a long time, American sociologists pointed out that there were lots of men who wanted to do more caregiving, but they were worried about how they would be perceived and treated by their co-workers. It's like if you're trapped in an environment where everyone worries that other people will judge them so they don't get to do the hands-on caregiving that they really want to. So then you have COVID, which is an exogenous shock, and it pushes many white-collar workers into working from home. And now many men are discovering how much they enjoy spending time with their kids. They want to continue this. And so even though women continue to bear the lion's share of caregiving, fathers, especially white-collar fathers, are increasingly stepping up their caregiving. And that is going to be one of the most important drivers of gender equality, because parity at work is only possible if fathers do an equal share at home. So you just spoke about white-collar men. There's a separate narrative, and I'm wondering whether you think it's true, about men who have not completed college, men who are divorced from the labor force. Josh Hawley, a Republican senator, talks about this image of of men who are idle and who are watching porn and playing video games as a sign of broader despair and how traditional values of masculinity need need to be restored. And you do see this rising anger among younger men. To what extent is this a fiction, a narrative, a story that fits into various people's political agenda? And to what extent is this something that is real and tangible and worrisome? It's absolutely true that uh, Eberstadt has written that there are 7 million men out of work. There is absolutely a problem with college completion. Agreed. Now, as for the misogyny, I should add that this current generation is more gender equal than ever. Of course, we do hear about backlashes. We do hear about misogynist accounts. But on the whole, we're more gender equal than we've ever been. 
Well, there's a difference, though, between gender equality and a cultural problem. So I've been struck by some of the research about what happens when men see their relative earnings decline compared with the earnings of a spouse, and they become more likely to abuse women, as an example. Yes, that's absolutely true. So in any culture where men endorse a patriarchal ideal and they feel that they're not getting the respect and the esteem they deserve, then there may be backlash, then there may be difficulties. Absolutely. But the proportion of men who feel that sense of entitlement is falling over time. And I think what we've also seen as women increasingly earn a higher wage, many women are refusing to put up with it. And I think that's part of the reason why you see such a high share of single mothers, that women don't want to put up with that crap. Hmm. The women may not want to put up with the crap, but there's a lot of support, I think, justifiably, for policies to help men catch up or help boys at least catch up. Is it possible to support men and boys in a way that doesn't undermine progress that women have made? Do you see these policies as zero-sum or can they be complementary? I think that it's important to recognize that men and women may face different constraints. So if it's the case that boys' prefrontal cortex matures later, then boys may need additional help in education. But then we need to also recognize that mothers are facing this huge challenge. After a woman gives birth, then her productivity seems to go down, then she seems to be discriminated against, and then her pay goes down. Different people with different kinds of obstacles need different kinds of support to create a more gender-equal society. Absolutely. So I remain fascinated by Josh Hawley and his focus on manliness. In my own mind, his campaign slogan should be Make America Manly Again, the acronym for which would be MAMA. But I was struck in the way that different politicians talk about the problems afflicting working-class men, including not just Hawley, but J.D. Vance, the senator from Ohio who wrote Hillbilly Elegy a few years ago, about how, how they see this problem playing out, the degree to which men are are under attack both from the left and also from broader structural forces. Holly talks about how globalization, which the left endorsed, has undermined manufacturing, et cetera. And so what kind of prescriptions do you see emerging on the right? Or what do you make about how conservatives talk about manhood and American men? So I think one thing that strikes me in general about the political debate in America compared to other countries is just how extreme it is, how much the left seems to see manhood and masculinity just as a problem and the right as something that needs to be protected at all costs. And a lesser version of this is playing out in other countries, but in America, it's just bigger and more extreme. And you see this in gender voting gaps as well, right, which are just wider in America than in most other countries. To your question, Charlotte, in terms of actual, you know, policy prescriptions or things that are offered. I mean, the thing that depresses me is how few prescriptions are actually offered either by the left or by the right. It is largely continuously framed as a sort of culture wars issue, like are you either for or against men? Whereas actually these should be seen as public policy issues, uh, particularly the questions around education and the workforce. You know, anything that can help boys do better in school 
and in university, I think, would have huge knock-on uh, consequences. But you could also, you know, learn from the Germans and say things like apprenticeships, etc., have a have a much bigger role to play to ensure men stay connected to the workforce and that there are multiple routes to success there. One of the interesting things about this discussion is whether it's a zero-sum game, whether you can advance the interests of boys and also advance the interests of girls and women. So, Idris, if you were president and you wanted to have a platform that advanced the interests of, of men and women both, would it be vocational training for men and more supportive policies through the childbearing years for women so they don't get that earnings knock when they have children? What would the suite of interventions be? Yeah, I I don't think it needs to be zero sum. I think that if a lot of the gender gap emerges because America doesn't have particularly good family policy, then, you know, paid leave and non-discrimination clauses make sense on, on that end. And on the beginning life stage, you know, I think that basically good social policy will also be good policy for young boys, particularly since the emerging literature suggests that girls, for whatever reason, seem to be a little bit more resilient when they grow up in environments of poverty or or violence. So really, any policy that improves schools, that decreases poverty experience when young, that improves the residential integration of neighborhoods will have this also side effect of of increasing this this convergence and and reversing uh, gender gaps. But I, I think there are things you could do and things that aren't you know, particularly sexy. They aren't going to be the kinds of things that Josh Hawley is is going to be giving speeches about, you know, increasing the number of apprenticeships, increasing the number of men who enter jobs like teaching or childcare or healthcare in nursing, not just doctors, right? Um, those things, I think, will make a huge difference if they're enacted. Yeah, it's kind of interesting, that point, right? Because politically, it's just so much more advantageous to play to voters' emotions than to present a long list of policy recommendations. I think that was most strikingly demonstrated in the relative campaigns of Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, but you see that again and again. Adris, one of the things that I think is interesting but also hard about this discussion is that concerns about masculinity and concerns about the state of American men coincide with so many other trends, right? So there's a long-running decline in attendance in churches and, and, and synagogues and a long shift towards secularism. There are various data on the ways in which men are increasingly experiencing isolation, whether it's a decline in male friendships, other forms of bonding that can help men feel more secure. So how do we stitch these different problems together? How are they related? I, I think that trend, the fact that there are all these transformations happening simultaneously, is what makes the conservative argument about this so difficult to implement. So the conservative position, like when Josh Hawley says that the left is purposefully attempting the deconstruction of men, and that we need to reclaim it has two challenges. One is that it's it's fundamentally revanchist, and you can't go back to a time that existed five decades ago because of all of those transformations. And then the second challenge, I think, is that the actual structure for constructing uh, masculinity, the sort of moral basis of it, in, in the modern day needs to be secular in origin. And in the past, it could be grounded in the church in a way that uh, most people found uh, 
to be universally understood. Now it needs to be constructed from a different basis. And you see people who are attempting to do that. I think that's what Jordan Peterson is attempting to do. And I think that's why so many people listen to him. But I think the challenge uh, and the ultimate improbability of their answer relies on the fact that so much has changed and you can't go back to the past. Holly talks about an assault on masculine virtues, including courage, independence, assertiveness. Those are good qualities, but there are lots of other great qualities that men presumably could embrace. So, Sasha, do you see what has happened in recent years with men on the upper end of the income distribution, as you alluded to, in the post-COVID era being more involved caregivers than there were before? Do you think that there is an opportunity now in this discussion to have a more productive definition of masculinity? Definitely. Definitely. And I think we can end on a relatively hopeful note there and say, firstly, you know, most Americans actually agree now with with the idea that actually it is desirable for fathers and mothers to be equally involved at homes and work. You know, this is not just an elite idea anymore. I think norms are shifting there. To address this point on the, stru- the the boring but essential structures you need there, I guess it just continues to be a question for both government and for employers to facilitate this, right? Because whereas, for example, our male colleagues are able to take a lot of the freedoms, the flexibilities, they can they can leave their job early to go and pick up their kids, etc. Um, men in more blue collar jobs often still have too much rigidity to be able to be that kind of father or man, whether that's paternity leave uh, or other things to facilitate that. And that's partly policy and that's partly culture and that's partly employers' attitudes. And I think there's still a way to go there. I have to say that like you, Sasha, I actually am a little weirdly optimistic about the current debate because I think there is a more clear understanding of actual versus imagined problems facing boys and men. And I think the more we face up to that, the more likely it is that there'll be some sensible reaction both in public discourse and in the policies that different politicians pursue. I think that it would be really helpful if there were more prominent models of modern masculinity among our politicians. And I'm discouraged deeply that one of the probable nominees next time around for the presidency is going to be someone who was just found liable for sexual assault. So I'm both optimistic and discouraged, which I think is a natural state for anyone who spends a lot of time observing American politics. It's a it's a it's a muddled stance, but nevertheless, here we are. Okay, I get to ask you both quiz questions now. So Idris and Sasha, define manhood. <laughs> so it's an open response this time. <laughs> I thought this was supposed to be multiple choice. You'll be scored from zero to 100. Um, Now, I'm going to spare you a dissertation-length answer and instead ask you about movies. So stay tuned. Great. Okay. (laughs) Earlier in this episode, we looked back at America in 1972 and mentioned John Borman's film Deliverance. So I'm going to ask you about other movies in that year. The Economist in 1972 described it as a big year for cinema because... There was a very high-grossing film that we expected to be, quote, the biggest money spinner ever. What was it? 1972. Highest-grossing film. Going to guess The Godfather. Oh, that's a good shout. That's a good shout. Um, Okay, I can't. Or if it's masculine, it could be Scarface also. I don't know. 
It was, a, it was a time of violent films, wasn't it? Also, also, it's probably too early for the Vietnam films. When did the Deer Hunter come out? No, that's later. It was indeed The Godfather. One point for Idris Kaloon. It okay, was cut out the second part where I question myself. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's staying in. That's definitely staying in. Uh, we predicted the film would make Paramount $100 million, and we were a bit bullish on that. But, Idris, you win. For a follow-up, can you name any of the other movies that did big business that year? Scarface. <laughs> uh, I don't 70s. know. On the Waterfront? Is that that year? Is that a joke? On the Waterfront also has Marlon Brando, who was in The Godfather. This gives me such pleasure that you answered that you gave such a bad answer <laughs> to this question. <laughs> Marlon, that one came out, I, I think... I think 20 years earlier. It was in the 50s. In any event, okay. I'm filled with delight at your at your answer to that question. Uh, what was Spielberg doing then? Okay, I'm going to give you some movies. I can't I cannot bear this for one more moment. Cabaret, Deep Throat, The Poseidon Adventure, which I've never heard of. Lady Sings the Blues. Anyway, those were a few of the films. It was a big year for movies in 1972, though not a big year for On the Waterfront, which came out in... 1956. 1954. Ah. Okay, that is it for this week. Thank you, Sasha. Thank you, Idris. Great. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Now, a request for you. We are always trying to improve our podcasts, and we would like your help. Whether you're a loyal fan or a new listener, we want to hear from you. Tell us what you think by filling out our listener survey, please. It takes only a few minutes. And to take part, you visit economist.com slash survey. This episode was produced by Julia Johnson and Stevie Hertz. Nico Raufast is our sound engineer. If you like the podcast, please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. We also have a checks and balance newsletter. You can sign up for that at economist.com slash newsletters. And you can always get in touch with us by email at podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. We'll see you next week. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.